Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. All righty. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, boy. The book of Revelation. Still time to call this off. Okay. Um, so, disclaimer. I just finished a month ago uh, a seminar, my PhD program on the book of Revelation, doctoral studies. We try to be fancy-smancy. They're not classes. They're seminars. And so I finished a seminar on the book of Revelation. I scored on the final exam a 99 out of 100. But wait, that means I'm going to get 1% of this wrong. Um, I just don't know which 1% it is. Uh, the book of Revelation. Let me tell you an ironic story. My relationship with the book of Revelation began back when I was probably about 11 years old, I think, in this church, back in the early 80s. In youth group, we watched a movie. It's a 1972 movie made in Iowa for $60,000. To try to give you some perspective in 1972 about the cost of films, that same year The Godfather came out, and I think it cost $10 million. This was $60,000. Uh, None of the actors were professionals. They were all volunteers. It showed. Um, and their special effects were, for example, when the rapture came, some guy's mowing his lawn, the camera pans up to the sky, it pans down, and the mower is empty. That was their special effects for the rapture. So I watched this cheap movie, even though... It became the most apparently rented movie on the face of the planet in the 1980s. It was called A Thief in the Night. Some of you may have seen it. If not, it's, I think it's on YouTube. It was the last time I checked. It scared the lemonade and fudge out of me. I was a rotten kid, and I thought, sure, I was going to wake up, and my parents and my older sister, because she was a straight-A student and a good Christian girl, were all going to be gone, and I was going to be stuck with my ratty little sister, who I didn't think would be raptured, and it would just be the two of us for seven years of tribulation under the Antichrist. I wanted nothing to do with the book of Revelation after that. Nothing. Absolutely nada. Zip, zero, zilch. And then, in 1997, just shy of my 25th birthday, I became a Christian. And without thinking it through, I made the pact with God that I would read through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. So, I continued to do that, and I'd read... And I'd get through near the end of New Testament, and it was getting into December. Take me about a year to read through it. And every time I went to Revelation, I was like, oh boy, here we go again. 
And when I went to seminary, and if you don't know anything about seminary, and why would you, um, to become an ordained minister, typically you have to earn what's called a Master of Divinity. That's a ridiculous name, obviously. There's no such thing as a Master of Divinity, but that's the name they gave the, uh, the degree. It's a 90-hour degree. It's basically three master's degrees wrapped into one. You get 30 hours of practical theology, preaching, teaching, discipleship, leadership, counseling. You get 30 hours of church history, theology, and philosophy. And then you get 30 hours of Greek and Hebrew and reading through the Old Testament and New Testament in Greek and Hebrew. And that's a master of divinity. It takes the average person five years, according to the Association of Theological Schools, five years to finish the Master of Divinity. I did it in two and a half. Now, that is not because I was just such a zealous Christian and just so sold out to God. That's because I was in Abilene, Texas, and I could not wait to get out of there. I don't know how many of you have been to Abilene. The people are very nice. But the weather is awful. I am one of those people, I like it to be fairly cold. Like 60, 65 degrees is like my sweet spot. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, likes it to be about 650 degrees. And I remember driving for lunch one day down Martin Luther King Boulevard in Abilene. And back then I had this Ford SUV and it had a thermometer, you know, outside uh, uh, by the, uh, one of the mirrors. And I looked at it, and on the pavement in August, it was 121 degrees. And I was like, I want out of here as quickly as possible. And I graduated at the top of my seminary class. They're like, hey, for graduation, do you want to speak? I said, I won't be here for graduation. They said, why not? I said, when I take my last final exam, there will be a U-Haul idling in the parking lot. I'm getting out of here. And so I tried, one of the reasons I got done so quickly is I took summer classes. I took a full slate of summer classes. And I had to take, I could only take so much from each of those areas, those three areas. And so I'm coming up on my second year, and I look at the summer schedule, and there's only one Greek class I can take for that summer. Guess what it was? The book of Revelation. I was like, oh, great. Fine. Got to take it. So I signed up. I go. Dr. Ian Fair was the professor. I go in, and I'm thinking, all right, let's get this over with. Let's talk about the Antichrist and the barcodes and the seven years of tribulation. Oh, let's get this over with. And I go in, and he gives us two commentaries to read. I start reading through the commentaries and listening to Dr. Fair's lecture, and I'm going, wait a minute. This isn't the stuff. This isn't the thief in the night. This isn't left behind. What? What's going on here? And he introduced me to the history of interpretation of the book of Revelation. 
which was very interesting. Now, one of the things you need to know is this, and in your bulletin insert on one side of it, there is a thing there that shows you the different ways the book of Revelation are interpreted, the whole book. There are five different methods for interpreting the book of Revelation. There are four different ways just to interpret Revelation 20 alone. And I was blown away by this. And especially when I learned that all this stuff that I'd seen in A Thief of the Night and heard people talk about and left behind and all this other kind of stuff was relatively new. When I started reading through the history of the interpretation of the book of Revelation, I couldn't believe that what most people believe about the end times in the book of Revelation in a 2,000-year-old faith had just come about about a hundred and some years ago. In 1833, an Irish-English attorney by the name of John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby was an attorney who became a full-time minister. Never trust those people. And he was out riding his horse. And his horse bucked him, and he fell, and he hit his head on a rock. Looking back, we understand that what had happened to John Nelson Darby was that he had a concussion. But in 1833, they didn't know what a concussion really was. And so they ran to get the doctor, and you doctors tell me how wise medical advice this is. He fell, he hit his head on a rock. He kind of shook a little bit. What should we do? They said, well, put him in bed. Let him go to sleep. That's not right, is it? <laughs> it was 1833. And so he's lying in bed, recovering. And they bring some news from his church that there was a little girl who had a nightmare about the world being run by one man and forcing them to adopt the number 666, but that God took the church away. And John Nelson Darby said, that's interesting. And he began to go through the Bible and put together notes from Genesis to Revelation. And he spent a lot of time in Daniel and Revelation. And he came up with this idea that... There would be an Antichrist, that this Antichrist would rule the world, demand worship, there would be seven years of tribulation, but that the true church would be raptured to heaven and would not have to deal with it. That was John Nelson Darby's idea in 1833, 1800 years after Christ was resurrected. For 1,800 years, you cannot find one mention of the word rapture. It's not there. He took this little girl's nightmare, and he invented the idea of the rapture. Now, he tried to sell this, but he didn't have a very big audience, except there was a guy in Texas named Schofield 
And he liked his ideas. And so he took his notes and put them in what was called the Schofield Reference Bible, which was published in 1909. And it became very popular. This whole idea of one world government and 666 and all this other kind of stuff. And it became popular for a while, especially during World War II. But then after World War II, it began to kind of fade until a guy named Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which took those notes and he wrote this little book, which became the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. And then it started to wane again, and then you got the Left Behind novels, which the author said we took, we basically novelized the late great planet Earth. But I'm not saying that just because something came 1,800 years after Christ that that makes it wrong, but it is kind of interesting that for 1,800 years, nobody had ever heard of an Antichrist or a rapture. Or seven years of tribulation. Isn't that interesting? And this is something that I ran by the staff the other day at our staff Christmas party. I asked them, how many times is the word Antichrist found in the book of Revelation? We'll take a guess. Zero. It's not there. It's not there. John does use the term in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but there he frequently does not say antichrist. He says antichrists, plural. Interesting. So I've spent, after not wanting to have anything to do with the book of Revelation, I've now spent the last 23 years studying the book of Revelation. I have preached on it once at a 30,000-foot view. I've taught it twice. And all three times, somebody got mad. And that's why I've tried to avoid it ever since. So much as I love it, people don't. We all have our traditions that we grew up with, and letting go of those are very difficult. Those being challenged very difficult and in irony upon irony doing a PhD program I have decided that my doctoral dissertation will be on the book of Revelation which is the reason why I got this thing here these are my notes for part of chapter one I'm not doing that to brag I have no life So, and you can have these study notes if you want them. You want me to send you a PDF copy of them so you can see where this stuff is coming from? Fine. That's fine. You can have them. I don't know why you would, but you can have them. So let's look at Revelation real quick. Now, we're going to spend some time here over the next few weeks. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the Greek, it actually says, Apocalypsis Iesu Christu, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to be clear about something here. When I say 
apocalypse or apocalyptic, you probably think the same thing I think. You think Mad Max Fury Road, Book of Eli. Have you seen the Book of Eli? No? What are you people doing with your spare time? I swear if you tell me The Bachelor, <laughs> I will excommunicate you. Got to see the book of Eli. Great movie. You think horrible, post-nuclear, nothing left but cannibals on the road, no food, all that kind of stuff. That's not what the Greeks and Romans meant by apocalypse. The Greek word apocalypse literally means unveiling, revealing, a reveal. It is God pulling back the curtain to heaven and saying, this is what's really going on. So, in English, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, unless you want a tongue lashing from my father, you'll probably get one anyway, he's cranky. But, always, notice this. It's the revelation, singular, not revelations. I've had half a dozen people, when we start revelations, and it's all I could do to go, it's, it's not revelations, don't let dad hear you say that. Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants what things, now notice this, must happen quickly. What things must happen quickly? The Greek word is tache, like a tachometer. Speedily, quickly, soon. And he clearly explained it. Some of your uh, translations say signify or symbolized or whatever or reveal, but it really means clearly explained. And he clearly explained it by sending through his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ inasmuch as he saw. Blessed are those who read and those who hear the words of this prophecy, more on that next week, and strictly keep what is written in it, for the appointed time is near. It's coming quickly. The time is near. John says, blessed. We confuse this today. Today in Christianity on TV and podcasts and YouTube and all kinds of stuff, blessed means that God's going to give you six-pack abs and, and, and a really nice car and, and a big bank account and all other kind of stuff, and you're never going to get sick and blah, 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 blah. None of that is what the Greek word blessed, makarios, means. It means to be in divine favor. It makes God pleased. Say, God will be pleased with you if you read, hear, and keep what is written herein. And notice that again. It's coming quickly. The time is near. More on that in a minute. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches in Asia, 
what they called Asia's modern-day Turkey. Grace to you all and peace from who is and was and is coming. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That word there, witness, is martyra. Martyro would later become martyr. Martyr. The faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sin by his blood. And he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and the power for age upon age. Truly, amen means truly. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and they will all see him, even those who pierced him, those who crucified him, and will mourn because of him all the tribes of the land. Yes, truly. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. So, a couple things there that you should notice. Number one, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter. It's a letter to the seven churches in Turkey. That's one. Two, it is a prophecy. Now, again, I want to clarify this. Prophecy does not mean, in the Old Testament, when the prophets were running around, prophecy had nothing to do with some weird guy and the eyes rolling back in their head and they're telling the future. All the prophets did was say what God told them to say or write down what God told them to write down. And they did not typically understand it. God says, Daniel, write this down. Okay. Ezekiel, write this down. Jeremiah, write this down. Okay. That's a prophet. John is writing down what God is showing him. It's a prophecy. And three, it's an apocalypse, an unveiling or a revelation. Now, here's the deal. The book of Revelation is not the only ancient Jewish Christian apocalypse. There are many, many others. If I told you that I was reading a book in which an apostle was taken by an angel to heaven, shown the throne of God, then taken back to earth where he encounters a beast, you would say, oh, you're reading the book of Revelation. Nope. That's called the Apocalypse of Peter. There was also the Apocalypse of Paul. There was also the War Scroll and the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was the Shepherd of Hermes, on and on and on and on. There are all these different apocalypses out there. Now, those aren't Scripture, and they were never recognized as Scripture, but they were out there. It was a very popular way to write. It was a genre of literature. And if you don't know what I mean by genre, you do even if you don't. You pick up a book, it's got no cover on it, you open it up, and the first line is, once upon a time. What are you reading? You're reading a fairy tale. 
You open another book, no cover on it, you read the first line. It's a dark and stormy night, and Inspector Fenton Sly was making his way down the grimy streets of New Orleans. Ah, uh, crime fiction, detective novel. That's a genre, right? Little Georgie looked into the sewer and saw a clown. You read that, you're not going, come here, kids! You're going, that's a horror novel. So when John goes, this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, everybody knew what he was saying. Oh, apocalypse, got it. Got it. So what's the definition of apocalyptic literature? I put a definition in there in your bulletin. Um, this one did pass muster with my professor. Apocalyptic is a Jewish Christian genre of literature found within and outside of Scripture. Apocalyptic works were written during times of great distress, crisis, for Israel or the church. The men truly inspired by the Holy Spirit to write within this genre are granted visions showing that God is in control, he's on his throne, and has a plan for his people and for those opposing and or persecuting his people. And the authors use dramatic symbols to describe these visions to convey the great historical weight they carry. In other words, they use a lot of symbols and they stretch language to the breaking point to convey what is going on. Now, every scholar, no matter how they interpret the book of Revelation, admits it's symbolic, that it's highly symbolic. When we get on in the book of Revelation, if you'll stick with me, as we start to get to the end of the book of Revelation, you're going to see this monster, this beast, out in the wilderness, and on top of the beast is the Babylonian harlot. Harlot's an old-fashioned word for a word I can't say in church. Let me just say that after church I may get the hankering for a ho-ho. Anyway, nobody, nobody, no scholar in the world literally thinks that Godzilla is going to come out of the Mediterranean Sea, wander into the wilderness, and be saddled by a Kardashian. They understand it's symbolic. It's pointing to something else. And there are times, there are things that happen when you have to use symbols and you have to use big language in order to get across what you're trying to get across. We have people in our church now who do not remember 9-11. They weren't alive in 9-11 or they were too little. How do you explain 9-11 to somebody who didn't live through it? If you say, well, September 11, 2001, Muslim terrorists took two planes, flew them into the World Trade Center, took a third, flew it into the Pentagon, a lot of people died. Okay, that's factual, but does that really tell the story? To really get it across, you've got to talk about people jumping 
hundreds of stories up from the World Trade Center to avoid being liquefied by hellish hot flames. Do you not? That's what they're doing. And when John is trying to describe these visions that he's seeing, that he can't really even get his hands on because he uses again and again the Greek word omois, omois, omois. Omois means like, kind of like. And he draws primarily from the Old Testament. We'll see this. For example, in Daniel 7.3, in Daniel's God, in, in, in 7.3, he's got four beasts coming out of the sea. Revelation 13, you've got a beast coming out of the sea. In Daniel 12.4, God tells Daniel, seal up this prophecy, for the time is not yet. But then in Revelation 22.10, the angel tells John, do not seal up this prophecy, for the time is near. Do you know what soon and near mean in Greek? Soon and near. I get this objection all the time, every time I've taught it. Okay, yes, Revelation says soon and near, but Matt, to God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. He doesn't look at time the way we do. That's true. However, God is not writing to God. God is writing to people. And to people, a day is a day, and a thousand years is a thousand years. To people, soon means soon, and near means near. And again, the Greek word, what does he say? I made this clear. They understood it perfectly. So for us to understand it, what we've got to wrestle with, what was the crisis? What was the great distress facing the church? There's a little timeline also in your bulletin on the flip side of how people have interpreted Revelation. There's a timeline. You can go back. I haven't got time to go through all of it. But I want to introduce you to someone. Chris, can you show, throw that picture up there? Let me introduce you to, eventually, is it up there? There he is. This is Nero. That's rather a flattering portrait. Um, he was actually overweight and usually had a scraggly beard, but he wanted to make himself look like a god, so that's what he did. Emperor Nero. Nero was, in every historian's estimation, a narcissistic sociopath. Let me give you a little background on Nero. Nero did not want to become Caesar. By Caesar, I mean that's how they refer to the king of Rome. The emperor of Rome was called a Caesar. They took the name of the first emperor, Julius, and made it mean king. Nero was the sixth Caesar of the Roman Empire. More about that later. Here's what you need to know about Nero. Nero's mother was married to the Caesar, Claudius. 
But Claudius looked like he was going to live for a while. His wife had other plans. She wanted her baby boy, Nero, to be Caesar. What she really wanted was because Nero was still a teenager, was she wanted to rule Rome through her baby boy, Nero. So, Nero's mother poisoned Emperor Claudius, and Nero became Caesar. And Nero's mom was like, dog, I run Rome because my boy is only interested in music and acting and poetry. So I'll call all the shots, have him sign the documents, way to go. There's only one problem with that. When your child is a psychopath, they don't tend to take orders well. So Nero, who, in all likelihood, also treated his mother like his wife, if you get my grift, had her killed. Oh, he didn't stop there. Nero had an aunt, an aunt. I say that because every single movie ever made about Rome, why do they have British accents? It's Italy 2,000 years ago. It's not London 20 years ago. He had an aunt who had a very nice house out in the country, and Nero really liked her fish ponds in her garden. He liked to compose music there, calmed him. So he killed her so he could inherit it. Oh, he didn't stop there. His first wife, Octavia, who we'll talk about more here in a second, Octavia, he had banished, exiled. And he let her live for a few years. Then he had her killed. His second wife made the mistake of asking him late one night where he'd been. Nero responded by stomping his pregnant wife to death. This is Nero. Nero always wanted to rebuild Rome. He thought the capital city of Rome, which housed a million people, was dirty and filthy. And as an artiste, he had this vision for what Rome should look like. So in 64 AD, he had it burned to the ground. 71% of Rome was burned. And he got in front of the public and he said, oh, this is terrible, what a horrible tragedy. But let's rebuild. And I just have the plans right here. And people begin, Rome began saying, he seems awfully happy about this. And so they began to point fingers, graffiti. Graffiti's nothing new. Graffiti started to pop up on Roman walls. Nero burned Rome, which he did. Now Nero knew he was in trouble. It's 64 AD. The Senate doesn't like him. They think he's weird. She was. They thought he was an embarrassment because he acted in plays and, and he played the lyre and composed poetry and demanded senators listen to his poetry and tell him how wonderful it was. 
But when they, the people started to point fingers at him, he knew he was in trouble. He knew it would do no good to come out in front of the people and say, I didn't do it. Because the moment a politician says, I didn't do it, what do you think? He did it. What he needed was a scapegoat. Now, there was one group that Nero really liked. And you wouldn't have guessed this in a million years. He loved the Jewish leadership in the temple in Jerusalem. He loved them. Loved them. Why? Because his first wife, Octavia, was fascinated with the Jewish religion. And to try to get Nero to be fascinated in it as well, she hired, basically, a fortune teller to come to the capital. And the fortune teller comes and shows up, and Nero asks her, will I ever lose my empire? The fortune teller says, well, if you do, you will have another kingdom. And he said, oh, really, where will my kingdom be? She said, you will be king in Jerusalem. So, he liked that. He'd heard how beautiful the temple was in Jerusalem. It's about a million more people in Israel. Fine. If I, don't, if I can't be Caesar, I'll be king of the Jews. So, when he needed a scapegoat, guess who came calling? Now, if you've read the book of Acts, you will remember the church early on only had one enemy. Who was it? It wasn't Rome. It was the Jewish leadership in the temple. They killed Jesus. They killed Stephen, the first Christian martyr. They sent Saul, before he became Paul, out to kill Christian Jews. They tried to kill Paul when he became a Christian. They would eventually kill, we'll talk more about this next week, Jesus' own brother James, throwing him off the top of the temple. They hated the Christians. So when Nero is looking for a scapegoat, the temple leadership in Jerusalem say, we got just the group for you. Christians. So Nero blamed the Christians. And in November of 64 AD, he began a three and a half year, keep that in mind, that will be important, a three and a half year purge of the Christian church. And not only did he have them banished, as John was, not only did he have them imprisoned, the torture that they endured was legendary. There was an ancient Greek myth that talked about these 49 women who had killed their husbands on their wedding night and were cursed by the gods to try to carry water up a hill in cracked vessels in broken pots. So when he had a bunch of hundreds of Christian women rounded up, he put them in the Colosseum and unleashed bears, panthers, and tigers that had been starved to death and gave them, for self-defense, cracked pots. 
because he thought that was funny. He would have Christians dipped in oil, tied to crosses along the main road in and out of Rome, and at night he would set them on fire, burn them alive to serve as torches. He would have some of them at his parties taken up to his mansion, tied up in his garden, and Nero would put on lion skin or bear skin and pretend to be an animal and bite chunks out of them, including their genitalia. Is it any wonder that one of the most popular philosophers at this time, not a Christian, Apollyon, who had traveled through Greece, Rome, Turkey, and Israel, never referred to Nero as Nero. He referred to him only by one name. Wait for it. The Beast. The Beast. Oh, there's something else. During this purge in 64, he also had the Apostle Paul beheaded and the Apostle Peter crucified upside down. There's more. In Book of Revelation, it talks about the beast and it says that the beast represents a kingdom. The kingdom has had five kings who have fallen, one king who is ruling, and one king who will rise but will only rule shortly. Well, let's look at this. Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero. And the seventh, Galba, ruled less than six months because he was assassinated by his own troops. Something else you need to know about first century Jews, they like to do something. They believed that your name had some kind of significance. Today we name kids because we think the name is cute or cool or whatever. Back then, they picked names, and sometimes they waited till you were two or three years old because most children didn't survive. So they wait till they were two or three and then give them a name they thought best fit their personality. And then you took the name, and what Jews would do is they would take, because every Hebrew letter had a number assigned to it, and they would see what your name was in numerology. It was a pastime. It was something that a lot of Jews did. Guess what Caesar Nero equals? 666. Now some people say, but wait a minute, Matt. I've seen, I've seen the History Channel on A&E. And they say that there is one document out there that says 616. Yes, that was written during a time when Latin had become 
the language of the empire. Guess what 616 in Latin turns out to be? Caesar Nero, the beast, the first persecutor of Christianity. Do you see why John says this will happen soon? The time is near. Mm. See, at the end of the day when we get through the book of Revelation, if you, your belief is that all the book of Revelation points to is the future, thousands of years in the future, fine. I don't see that, but fine. I would caution you to be careful. In 1988, maybe some of you remember this, in 1988, a radio preacher said that he knew when the rapture would happen. He gave the date. He said it will happen on this day in 1988. So many people believed that preacher was correct. They quit their jobs, sold their house. Many of them put their pets to sleep so that their pets would not be left behind without an owner. Guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Be very careful about this. Ever since John Nelson Darby's notes about the rapture and the future and all this other kind of stuff, Everybody, every seems, every Christian generation thinks they're the last generation. This is it. This is the last generation. We're it. Christ is coming sometime in my lifetime. And they've been saying that for 191 years. I don't know when Christ will come. Neither do you. But let me ask you this, and I'll leave you with this. What if we're not the last generation? What if Christ doesn't return for another thousand years or two thousand years? What kind of world, what kind of community, what kind of church are we leaving for our children, our grandchildren, our grandchildren's grandchildren? We don't know. We don't know. You don't know. In Acts 1, the disciples asked Jesus, is this it? Is this it? Now that you've been resurrected, are you going to restore the kingdom, which means you're going to be launch the new heavens and new earth, and you're going to be king here? Is this it? And Jesus looked at him and said, not for you to know. If the disciples who spent were picked by Jesus himself and spent three years with Jesus. If they don't get a no, you think Kurt from San Bernardino with his YouTube channel knows? Give me a break. They don't know. They don't know. This is how I'll leave you, and we'll pick up here next week.
talk about some more about the second coming and all that stuff, prophecy. We'll get to that next week. Let me leave you with this, because I know I'm a few minutes over. It's like Dad's preaching. All right, fellow Christians, do not look for a second coming in charts and in the news. In fact, be ready any time, but don't be looking for it. Don't look for a cleft in the sky. Look to the empty tomb and be faithful now. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that we would be, as you urged your churches, facing persecution, even though we are lucky to face so little in this country. And we thank you for that. We pray that we will be faithful nonetheless. We will look to the cross, know that you died in our place. As John wrote in Revelation 1, you freed us from sin through your blood. We keep that in mind and be faithful every single day. And not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Well, folks, um, what's going to happen in this sermon series is when I'm done, I'm going to sit down right chair. If you have questions, make them easy. You're welcome to come ask. Don't get too far ahead. We're going to take this slow. If you're looking for stuff to read, I've got books. You can't have them, but you can take pictures of them or whatever. If you want more to read on this stuff, you're welcome to them. God bless you. God goes with you. Have a great week. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.